0: This is WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for True Talk. Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5. This is the True Talk radio show and the True Talk podcast hosted by WMNF and with Summer Jarrah and myself. Summer, welcome. Today is uh, January 11th, Thursday, January 11th, and um, it's the new year, 2024, but new things are happening. However, some things have continued since last year, which is the war on Gaza, which many people have identified as a genocide. Um, Summer, we have a good program today, but first I wanna ask you, how are you?
1: Inshallah, Ahmed, good morning and uh, welcome to our uh, show talk that uh, we are experimenting with uh, transmitting live via my feed on Twitter. If you are on Twitter, go to Samar s-a-m-a-r the letter d and then jarrah j-a-r-r-a-h and hopefully Ahmed we're going to be reaching more and more uh, people who uh, will be listening to interesting interviews uh, that we bring to people like today we're going to be talking to michael uh, beer from the non-violence organization and coalition but we're going to talk about it in a few minutes but um, important things happening uh, Ahmed. Is starting today. that I we spoke to Huayoyer, and I think we're going to be talking right. about it from time to time. Uh, but today uh, we're going to be talking about um, interesting topics, especially nonviolence and nonviolence means, because now. Uh, students, for instance, when they go to college and they try to uh, show their support for the Palestinian people and to ask for ceasefire, they are labeled as terrorists and pro-Hamas. So I'm very pleased that today we're going to be having uh, Michael with us because he has written a book on nonviolence means and really uh, help uh, those who listen how to deal Ahmed uh, with these uh, important issues.
0: Summer, um, a lot has been happening in the news. I mean, day by day, everything is changing. Um, Senator, I mean, Secretary Blinken has been traveling and touring Mm -hmm. the region Mm -hmm. um, as far as in the Middle East visiting, um, you know, uh, Israel and Palestinian territories and and other regional uh, actors. I just want to tell our listeners that we're actually, even though the show is broadcasting today, Thursday, January 11, we actually, our interview with uh, our guest, Michael Beer, uh, took place before, uh, took place yesterday. So if there are any new developments as of today, they're not going to be included in that interview. So keep that in mind because the situation is rapidly changing. And yes, South Africa has filed this complaint of genocide uh, to the ICJ, the International Criminal or International Court of Justice, which is different from the ICC, International Criminal Court. And um, it's kind of interesting that the way the ICJ works, we're going to learn more about that. We're going to see an action tomorrow. But it seems like the side that's even uh, accused of genocide has a right to appoint one of the judges Mm -hmm. to be on the court, to deliberate, and... Interestingly, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has selected none other than um, Dershowitz.
1: No, they Dershowitz. changed him. Ahmed. Oh, they changed no. him. Or well, initially, yeah, yeah. okay.
0: Yeah. See, it's how often things are changing. But initially, Alan Dershowitz was selected as one of the, representative the names of Israel.
1: recommended. But I think uh, soon, with the Epstein scandal, Epstein.
0: Yeah, it became a distraction because he's one he's mentioned the most in that. Uh, In the in the the documents that were um, made public and people were questioning, how is it that the guy that's defending against genocide is also implicated in the Epstein thing? And I'm surprised how often he's on um, being interviewed. On top of that, he's a one of the senior professors at the Harvard Law School who's been himself accused of plagiarism over and over, and it's documented. There's like a complete, you know, Norm, Norman Finkelstein has done a book about this. However, he was on the attack against the outgoing or the now resigned Harvard mm-hmm. president, Gay, yeah. who uh, was later accused of plagiarism uh, for far less occurrences than Dershowitz. But you got this, so you have this double standards that's happening where you have this group of people that are attacking uh, people like President Gay, former President Gay of Harvard for plagiarism when they themselves are accused of it. And on top of that, they don't apply the same standards to themselves. And at the end, people are just realizing that the whole controversy, fabricated controversy about plagiarism was really about trying to silence criticism of Israel.
1: Is that how you saw it? Yes, indeed. And I think uh, Michael might also address these issues because they fall within the idea that now as a Palestinian uh, American like myself, if I express myself or my support for my people who are being butchered live on TV… Uh, I might be labeled as uh, pro-Hamas or uh, supporting a uh, uh, resistance movement or supporting terrorism or or being anti-Semitic. So really, I think the whole idea is to silence people and to make them afraid because now we have citizen journalism, we have regular Gazans who are taking pictures of their butchered children and put them uh, on Twitter and Facebook. And how do you silence that? How do you... Do you deal with this humanitarian crisis going on is by trying to silence people who are speaking about it and who are trying to uh, tell the world uh, about it. So I'm really pleased, Ahmed, if you want to introduce our guest, uh, Michael, because he has an experience probably in all that we're talking uh, about.
0: Right. And now we're joined by Michael Beer. He's the director of... um the Nonviolence International. He's been the director since 1998. Uh, Michael is a global activist for human rights, minority rights, and argues against war and casino capitalism. Not sure what that is. Maybe we'll ask him about it. He has trained activists in many countries, including Myanmar, Kosovo, Tibet, Indonesia, Thailand, Cambodia, India, Zimbabwe, and the United States. He's a frequent, frequent public speaker on nonviolence, and has been um, on all the major networks, including CNN. And thank you for joining us, uh, Mr. Michael Beer.
2: Thank you. It's an honor to be with you both today.
0: Uh, We wanted to ask you, when we're talking about nonviolence, it it seems especially now we're seeing a lot of violence happening in Gaza from the Israeli side with this uh, indiscriminate and a lot of times targeted violence against civilians. People trying to speak out against the ear in nonviolent ways, meaning protesting in the streets, speaking on on college campuses, um, doing civil disobedience. There are forces in this country trying to shut that down and basically accuse them of some sort of uh, terrorism or sympathy with terrorists or somehow being anti-Semitic. How are you seeing those activities across the nation by average Americans that are speaking out?
2: We're seeing resistance to this ongoing ethnic cleansing and genocide uh, perpetrated by Israel on Gaza around the world and here also in the United States. Uh, Clearly, the United States government and some other governments are supporting Israel in this genocide. And we're left with the people of the world and the smaller countries of the world to stand up and resist, and we're seeing remarkable resistance in addition to civil disobedience that you you talked about and people speaking up in various venues. We also have unions, labor unions, who are refusing to uh, load ships uh, that uh, might be sending weapons to Israel. We have boycotts uh, going on on various companies that are doing business in Israel and in doing business in the West Bank. Uh, We have just a huge range of resistance going on uh, around the world and here in the United States and it's very encouraging. The scale is really quite quite remarkable.
0: Well, uh, that scale is remarkable and we're seeing it everywhere. However, it's being It seems uh, misrepresented by the mass media and it's misrepresented by politicians. We saw hearings after hearings and uh, politicians speaking uh, in the media or in public and trying to depict these movements as somehow pro-Hamas. They're counting all of these rallies and protests against war, against violence, against genocide, and simply putting it, oh, these guys are supporting the Hamas terrorists. They support what happened on October seventh. In fact, they go as far as that these protests that are calling to stop genocide—they're somehow flipping it and saying they're calling for genocide of the Jewish people. Um, how is it that how is it that you see that all these movements for peace and to stop the violence and to for ceasefire being? misrepresented deliberately and uh, twisted into somehow calls for violence and genocide.
2: Yes, this is uh, from an old playbook. The Israelis and their U.S. allies have been playing this for a long time, basically saying that people who are engaged in nonviolent action are somehow terrorists and somehow anti-Semitic and other kind of, you know, un- Unwarranted attacks. They're trying to distract people, trying to repress voices calling for an end to this genocide. We have to recall that Martin Luther King was called a communist. Uh, Mandela was on the U.S. terrorist list, you know, through the 1990s. Uh, so, you know, they call people they don't like terrorists, uh, and we. In my opinion, this terrorism label is not generally very helpful. It usually dehumanizes other sides, even when terrible things are happening. And they're trying to distract from the obvious ethnic cleansing and genocide that's going on in uh, in Gaza right now.
0: Uh, that's, that is obvious that they're doing that, but it's not just their words, they're actually taking action. I mean, the other side seems to be very organized when I say the other side, the side that wants this war and violence to continue, um, which there's a lot of them, uh, bipartisan, you know, support for this in Congress. I mean, you find it's amazing that uh, Republicans and Democrats don't agree on anything. You know, they're split and polarized on everything. But on this one issue of uh israel and support for what's happening their campaign in gaza it seems like there's just so much support from both sides especially from the establishment democrats and republicans to continue i mean the white house is sending weapons even when congress can't agree Um, but also at the state level i mean in florida with the shows airing where we're hosting it from governor DeSantis is taking action against student groups that are for palestine and you've seen other governors take action against um, Arab or Muslim or Palestinian organizations, trying to silence them. How is it that how can nonviolence win when or I guess speaking out when the other side is doing everything they can to shut it down and to misrepresent it and attack it as somehow supporting violence? Uh, how are you guys in the nonviolent nonviolence international movement trying to um, to, I guess, counter uh, those uh, tactics of depicting the protesters as somehow supporting violence,
2: right? Well, one of the things that we we do is our conduct, and uh, our conduct has been throughout the movement really has been uh, very nonviolent throughout the United States. In fact, frankly, around the world, uh, we've not seen. Uh, significant numbers of violent attacks or behavior on the part of people speaking out for the Palestinians. And so one of the most important things that we've done is we've conducted ourselves in very uh, reputable and nonviolent ways. Uh, Of course, the the elites uh, and the institutions will try to repress us, as they've done for many decades. Uh, This is not new. The good news is that uh, they're repressing us in the sense that that means we're actually being heard or seen and they're worried about our impact uh, and they feel like they have to push back. Um, and so uh, that's one way of looking at this is the glass half full that we're, we're actually getting heard at some level so that they're repressing uh, us. And nonviolence in its essence is substantially about disruption it's a social power of, uh, that we have in very uh, – every society has social interconnections and social power. And we're using that social and, in some cases, economic power to disrupt uh, the way things are happening, business as usual, and we're getting attention for our cause. Uh, some of these disruptions are um, blocking traffic. Uh, Some of them are singing songs, so they cover a wide range of kinds of disruptions, and uh, we have a battle on our hands to see which side's going to win, the establishment, using the repression, or people power, uh, using all kinds of social power in particular and economic power to, to force a change in U.S. policy specifically and hopefully Israeli policy.
1: Michael, I'm glad you mentioned the word disruption because I'm going to tell you what happened uh, a few days ago. I uh, put on Twitter uh, the images of uh, young people blocking the bridges in New York. Uh, And uh, a few from the Arab world actually were telling me, isn't this negative? Uh, Won't this make other people who are trying to go to work angry and if they find out that for instance this is in support of palestine or this is in support of a ceasefire that this action might backfire and make people upset because they want to go to work and then there was another one that uploaded and it i think disrupting the uh, the the road JFK. And there was an image of a young uh, lady who was uh, taking her uh, suitcase and getting uh, on top of a bridge or trying to cross. But actually, some of the demonstrators were helping her and she seemed to be smiling. But again, the people who were watching said, Why do you do this? These tactics are negative. How, How do you address that?
2: Right. This is uh, something that often happens with nonviolent action, uh, and it's a communication challenge, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. We need to convince the people who are being inconvenienced, potentially, by disruption of traffic, that think about your situation and your, your inconvenience and compare that to people in Gaza right now and reflect on the kind of inconvenience that they are going through getting bombed and starved and we are so outraged that we're we're inconveniencing you because we need everybody to wake up we need to we just can't go about as normal and so there's a ongoing contest of communication where we need to convince these folks that our actions are justified one of the most famous Uh, responses to disruption uh, and defenses of disruption is Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, which I encourage everybody to reread. It's always very inspiring. And he was responding to the criticism of white pastors who said they were supportive, but said, oh, you're pushing too hard. You're being too disruptive. And he wrote back saying, we are constantly being accused of being disruptive, and we can't wait. We cannot wait. And we have a situation in Gaza where we literally are having thousands of people die. Uh, we have a million people perhaps starving. We cannot wait uh, for the normal establishment or electoral processes to play out. We need everybody to speak up now, and this is the, this is the message that we're bringing and I think can justify the nonviolent actions that we're doing.
1: And I think this is an old, uh, like, uh, trend in the U.S., um, maybe even during the Vietnam War. Uh, Was it similar to what is going on uh, today, you think, this idea of disruption because things are really terrible, uh, whether when they were happening to African Americans in the U.S. or whether uh, the Vietnam War or today in Gaza. Do you see that there is a similarity in the behavior of the nonviolent movement in the US vis-a-vis all these past uh, issues that took place here?
2: Yes, there are similarities, and there are still some Vietnam War protesters who are now in their 70s and (laughs) 80s who are out there protesting. Um, And uh, indeed, there was all kinds of disruption, uh, whether cultural disruption, artistic disruption, traffic, uh, all kinds of laws getting gotten broken uh, to try to stop the Vietnam War and a similar situation here uh, today. Generally speaking, uh, the United States public has not had a big impact on foreign policy in many respects. You can point to Vietnam. You can point to the Central America uh Uh, challenges where the United States was imperialist down there. You can point to the nuclear freeze movement. It's quite difficult for people power in the United States to have a big impact uh, on the foreign policy and military uh, establishment. There are some successes, but they're not great. Uh, What's going to be the biggest pressure is actually foreign countries. I use the Iraq war as an example. Uh, We had the vast majority of people against the Iraq war, or I should say the Iraq war, the U.S. war on Iraq. Mm -hmm. And even though the vast majority of people were against this war, we had the president push ahead. But he almost failed because he needed some countries to support him. He couldn't do it alone. Mm -hmm. And Turkey at the last minute withdrew its support when parliament there said no. And this was a huge blow to the Bush uh, administration. And then it came down to Blair in England, and he barely won a a no-confidence measure, barely won it. And that was enough for the Bush administration to go forward. If Without that, they wouldn't have. So we need to isolate this US administration internationally, and we need people power here in the United States to pressure as much as we can. And together, I hope we can stop this madness.
1: It's interesting that you say that, Michael, because, for instance, there was a call, uh, I think three or four weeks ago, uh, by a young uh, Palestinian, I think who lives in Turkey, for a day of strike. And it started like a national day of strike that maybe she appealed to the Arabs and the Arab world to do it. and But it became an international phenomena, where he here, even in Tampa... More than 150 stores and different businesses did not open on uh, Monday, and it was a global movement. So I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that what is happening in the U.S. and your efforts might be uh, really copied or maybe even coordinated with other people. But I want to really ask you about uh, a video that I saw, quite interesting. Uh, it's about, uh, I think, uh, asking for a ceasefire, but you played it or projected it uh, at the uh, U.S. Holocaust Museum. And I think Ahmed had um, a clip for it, so maybe Ahmed will play the clip of, uh, of that and then ask you, uh, Michael, to talk about it.
2: here, and I'm director of non and we are supporters of the Holocaust Museum, helping them fulfill their mission to stop genocide everywhere. We're here today calling on the Holocaust Museum to live up to its principles of never again, no genocide in Gaza, and ceasefire fire now. My name is Marianne Ehrlich, born in Vienna, escaped to Prague, to London four
1: days before World War II broke out. And
3: I'm here to say that I do not want to receive the repeat of the Holocaust anywhere else well, in the world. Well, my name is Jonathan Tab. I'm a human rights attorney. I'm also the executive director of Foster Friends of Seville, North America. I'm here to support this institution, and to remind everybody that genocide is a war crime, a crime against humanity, and an international crime, no matter of who is the perpetrator and who is the victim. Having I have a limited personal experience. is not something, something that, that I, want I want anyone else, else
1: to have to live through. Uprooting uh, people's lives, uprooting, uprooting, of their, uprooting their, their culture, uprooting, uprooting, their their culture uprooting, uprooting, uprooting their children's lives.
3: International law is built on a number of values and principles that should apply to friends and foe alike. If the Holocaust is bad, if genocide is bad, if we say never again, we have to say it regardless of who are the victims and who is the perpetrator. And we are here to call on this institution to honor its own principles and list the genocide of Gaza. As one of the current genocides taking place in the world today,
0: Michael, your reaction.
2: Well, I got only pictures. I feel wonderful about this action. Sorry, hold on. I have to give it.
0: Okay, go ahead.
2: I feel this action was a really wonderful action. We had a Holocaust survivor with us. We had Jonathan Katab, a well known Palestinian uh, human rights attorney, there. And we were all calling on the museum to live up to its values of never again for anyone. And we uh, projected photographs of the situation in Gaza as well as uh, photographs from the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, from World War II, and we're trying to uh, wake the museum up and have them speak out on this issue. Uh, The museum has a mixed record on speaking up for uh, those that are um, uh, oppressed and uh, have had genocide committed against them. And we're calling on them to to live up to their, their stated mission we will continue to push um, this institution because we can't have a separate set of rules for Jews where there's somehow Jewish exceptionalism, where they're the only ones who can suffer from genocide and then the rest of the world. Genocide is a convention that many countries have signed onto. It's a universal problem. And we are calling on this museum, which is founded by the United States government uh, to speak up at this time.
0: I mean, are you concerned that when you say that you don't want Jewish exceptionalism that people will confuse those words with that you're, I don't know. I mean, obviously, anytime you bring up this issue, there's the attacks of anti-Semitism because there is this type of historical trauma you know, rightfully so, there is truth to anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, anti-Semitism is real. What happened in the Holocaust is real. The Nazi targeting and massacres and, of uh, you know, mil- killing millions of Jewish people because of their ethnicity is real. Um, do you feel like that's that's why this issue is so sensitive and so many people are afraid to get involved because of this kind of you know, historical guilt, that the world allowed that to happen, and now we shouldn't even, you know, question uh, what's happening, in it, you know, by the Israel now.
2: Yes, I think, unfortunately, the Holocaust has been weaponized uh, against uh, Palestinians and Palestinian supporters. Uh, I myself, my great-grandfather, uh, died in a Nazi camp. And one of the reasons you see so many people of Jewish heritage out on the streets in the United States, and we have lots uh, out on the streets and protesting, is because uh, we see that uh, genocide can happen to Jews. It can happen to anybody. And in this very ironic situation and tragic situation, we have Jews in Israel uh, who are actually now perpetrating uh, the kind of horror that was perpetrated upon Jews, on Palestinians. Uh, There's the famous maxim, hurt people, hurt people. And we're seeing that now. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, uh, we need the United States to stand up. It's complicit in this genocide. Our weapons are being used, our money is being used, our political support. We're very complicit in this genocide. And there are many people of Jewish heritage and others who are saying, we don't want a repeat of the Holocaust. We don't want genocide in Gaza or anybody else. We need to speak up, and we need to withdraw our support for this.
0: We're seeing um, a record number of um, Jewish people, Jewish Americans, that are standing up and speaking out against forces like APAC and ADL and Christian Zionists who are pushing for this type of you know, ethnic cleansing or promoting of ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. We keep hearing it from people like presidential candidate Nikki Haley, who says, Well, don't they just leave? It's better for them to leave. And they keep repeating this, that it's safer for them to leave this area. And we start hearing it from average individuals. Well, you know, people in Cuba that were under communist and, you know, oppressive rule or in Venezuela, they're leaving. They love their homelands, but they left because of the persecution. Why don't these Palestinians just leave? And how do you answer? I mean, I know you're not Palestinian, but you are. You have ancestors who uh, were targeted uh, in the Holocaust. Uh, How do you answer those kind of individuals that keep telling them they should just leave?
2: Well, this is really quite a racist formulation where you have predominantly Europeans going to Israel Uh, granted Jews do have a historical connection to Israel so the settler colonialism analogy is partially uh, uh, true here but you have Europeans going to Israel and displacing local people and do we really want to be repeating the horrors of colonialism that we've seen around the world and, and, and make the indigenous people suffer and move and leave this is really not uh, acceptable, and that's why the vast majority of the global South and the gl- vast majority of the world does not support uh, ethnic cleansing here or anywhere else uh, of indigenous people. And why is it that the Palestinians are being asked to leave? Um, so it's it's just outrageous uh, to to it's ethnic cleansing and justifying it on on the grounds somehow you know, oh, life is unbearable, they should leave. Well, frankly, in my view, uh, the Israel government is responsible for taking on the full cost of rebuilding everything that they've destroyed. And they shouldn't expect... They shouldn't expect the U.S. taxpayers or the Middle East uh, countries or anybody else to rebuild all of the, all of the infrastructure and all of the things that they've destroyed and they should be rebuilding oh. all of this I mean, uh, it, on their dime.
0: It's common sense. If, Like here in America, if you actually get in a car accident and you're responsible, <laughs> you're responsible to cover the other person's damage. If somebody comes and you hurt them, you there is responsibility. There is accountability. But for some reason, Israel continues, the military continues to go in, yeah, all they, the in Gaza, and they right. keep destroying things and... They count on Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and others to just rebuild it only for them a few years later to go in and destroy it. Now they're completely leveling it to the ground. 70% of the housing buildings in Gaza are now completely destroyed, unlivable. I mean, would you agree that this is part of the plan to make uh, Gaza uh, unlivable, that people cannot, even if they wanted to return home, there's no Uh. home to return to?
2: I want to remind uh, your your listeners that the United Nations declared Gaza an unlivable uh, location all the way back in the year 2020. It was already horrifyingly challenging and difficult, people drinking contaminated sewage water as their norm. Uh, so uh, this has now gone to an even more extreme situation now, obviously. The Israelis have been clear from the beginning that they are, want to do ethnic cleansing. We hear this from their top leaders. Hamas is really an excuse. Uh, the Israelis have been attacking Gaza long before Hamas even existed. It's been going on for many, many decades. And uh, if they really wanted to release the hostages, uh, they could have re- the hostages would have been released tomorrow. Uh, I can assure uh, everybody listening that, that the hostages would be released tomorrow, if Israel would release all the Palestinian captives under its hold and end the siege, and tomorrow Hamas would release all the hostages, but Israel was not really interested in re- in releasing the hostages. Their real goal here was ethnic cleansing, and it's pretty obvious.
0: They're using this as a as a pretext to do something that at least the elements of this government, Netanyahu, who seems to be ideological an ideological believer. In that this whole land should belong to only, yeah, uh, you know, for one group. In fact, their own Likud charter says, from the river to the sea, that there's only a Jewish state. And this is what gets me upset when they turn this around, the phrase from the river to the sea, that somehow it's only Palestinians. When they use it, it means genocide for the Jewish people. But however, when uh, Netanyahu and other Israeli fanatics use it, that somehow that means that hey, this is their land, and that's not what they mean. When in fact they're carrying out the genocide. Uh, Summer, I wanted to bring you back in, but uh, one more thing that I just wanted to mention to comment on Michael what he was saying about um, uh, these Europeans that settled in uh, what is now you know in Palestine. Um, there was there is a historical connection of the Jewish people to that Holy Land. However, these were the children of Israel. Uh, the children of Jacob, those 12 tribes, uh, the Israelites, you know, the ones that are mentioned in the Bible, many of them are like what ended up being Sephardic Jews, Mizrahi Jews, Persian Jews, Arab Jews. They have a rich history of coexisting in that land. They coexisted with the Arabs, with the Palestinians for centuries without this type of situation. What you have now, though, the, the European folks, the European Jewish individuals, Who are not from the original children of Israel because they're white. They're from Russia, they're from Poland, they're from Germany. They don't have Hebrew or Aramaic or Arabic names, and uh, they came and it was a project from Europe. So when you talk about the historical connections, I think there are even some books where some Israeli historians have said that many of the original children of Israel, those tribes and uh, descendants of the Israelites, Many of them actually are now the Palestinians that converted and became whether Christian or Muslim and, you know, through DNA testing. So this idea that somehow God promised uh, the Jewish people this land. Sure, there are evidence of that, that God made this historical promise, if you believe, which I actually believe in God. However, um, that doesn't even apply necessarily to the people that came from Germany or Russia who were persecuted by in russia and in europe and were put into ghettos it wasn't the muslims that did that it's not like the muslims did that to jews jewish people and communities in europe and now they have to somehow pay the price for it it's just so so sad that you know somehow the the narrative has changed that way uh i don't know if michael if you have any comments on that or i'll turn it over to summer
2: well i just say that this There are settler-colonial aspects to this conflict, uh, but I think it's, I I believe that Jews uh, do have some legitimate claim to a connection to the territory. And so my hope is that for the future, that we here in the United States and my organization at Nonviolence International will commit to supporting Israelis and Palestinians who are willing to build a shared future together. And when people want to know what is the solution, that to me is the solution. Supporting groups like Combatants for Peace, uh, the Standing Together parent circle, uh, folks working for potentially uh, a one or two state solution, but one in which the Israelis and Palestinians We'll build a shared future. That's that's the way forward.
1: Michael, let me just uh, refresh the uh, memory of our listeners and say that we are uh, True Talk, and my co-host Ahmed and I are talking to Michael Beer, who is executive director of non-national you are also the author of the book Civil Resistance Tactics in the 21st uh, century I want to ask you about it but I really had a comment uh, to make uh, about uh, Nikki Haley in particular when she says let them leave Uh, why don't they just leave and i'm wondering would they uh, allow the palestinians to come uh, to the u.s okay fine they will leave maybe they don't want to go to cairo maybe they don't want to go to jordan maybe they would love the florida weather and i really would want somebody to tell her fine let them leave uh bring them here to the u.s <laughs> i wonder <laughs> if she's gonna accept but really i want to mention something because you mentioned that you have uh, a jewish ancestry who uh, perished in the holocaust uh, with the segment that ahmed showed uh, there was a, a jewish lady who is who survived uh, uh luckily and was able to make it uh, and when, when we see the images of the people uh, doing the civil disobedience, disrupting uh, uh, transportation and uh, Central Park and the uh, bridges, many of them are young, young uh, Americans as well as young uh, Jews. Do you feel the relational gap Uh, I mean, other than uh, than people like you who have always been active, who have always uh, tried to uh, better things in the U.S. and elsewhere. But do you notice that there is a generational gap? And maybe this also goes back to um, a statement that is very important that you did and you said was that we can't change U.S. foreign policy we can be doing this the civil disobedience day in day out we can't change foreign policies. is this rational difference between the older generation and the younger generation is the future that they will be uh, running for office in the future and they are the ones who are going to change us foreign policy and maybe change how this country is always attempting to uh be the only superpower and very imperial and colonial in its foreign policy um what do you think uh, mike
2: well yeah my 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 speculation about the future may not be better than any than anybody else is listening here but oh, we no. do see the politi- We do see the opinion polls here in the United States that show a age divide
1: mm-hmm. in that
2: support. We do see a lot of disruption and nonviolent action going on. That yes, older people are participating in, but it's predominantly younger people. Uh, we have groups like If Not Now uh, from the Jewish community. There's a new group called Mennonite Action from young Mennonites who are really stepping up to do nonviolent action and to change foreign policy. We have got a horrible uh, 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 set of policies uh, when it comes to Israel historically and we desperately need to change it. Uh, I hope we don't have to wait another generation till new folks are elected to get that change happen. but in my in my view,. Uh, US support for Israel has been a, a, a geopolitical disaster for the United States. We would have not in, had the 911 attack in New York probably, Uh, if not for U.S. policy on Israel. And it's cost us enormously. We invaded and occupied Afghanistan for 20 years. It's cost us trillions of dollars. A lot of the Muslim world really disrespects us and uh, uh, and even in some cases hates us. And we're seen as hypocrites around the world because we talk about human rights. We talk about, for example, Russia invading and occupying Ukraine. Well, the United States supports Israel's annexation of Golan and uh, East Jerusalem. And we also support Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara. And these are U.S. allies. We love it when our allies annex and invade other countries and occupy them. But we don't like it when our opponents do. So the United States foreign policy is really, really messed up. And we need the younger generation to come in with moral clarity to say, enough with this double standards, let's move U.S. foreign policy into a much more sensible direction.
0: Uh, We're speaking to Michael Beer. He's the uh, director of Nonviolence International. He's actually been in that post since 1998 and training people around the world in nonviolence. Uh, Speaking of uh, violence and nonviolence, I want to play a clip of Senator Blinken at the beginning of the show. I mentioned that Blinken is going around the Middle East again, for I think this is the fifth time that he's doing some sort of trying to do diplomacy, but he's met with a lot of skepticism. This was his comment just two days ago in Qatar. Um, On the same day that he arrived there, it was the day that uh, the son of uh, the Al Jazeera bureau chief uh, was killed. And, of course, uh, that's significant because Al Jazeera is headquartered and is funded by the Qatari government. And on the same day that that happened, Anthony Blinken was in uh, Doha. Here's what he had to say. Um, Let me see if I can cue this. Okay, here we go. I think you can, uh, when I play it, let me know if Uh, you can hear it.
2: Now, as you said, in three months. months since those attacks. And this is a moment of profound tension in the region. Um, this is a conflict that could easily metastasize, causing even more insecurity and even more suffering. So from day one, among other priorities, we have been intensely focused on working to prevent the conflict uh, from spreading. And that is indeed a major focus of what is now my fourth visit to the region since October 7. It was at the heart of discussions uh, yesterday with uh, President Erdogan and Prime Minister Mitsotakis. Uh, this morning with King Abdullah in Jordan, and in the meetings that I just had with the Emir and with the Prime Minister.
0: So um, you heard his comments there, Senator Blinken, saying that you know they're worried about this spreading. Uh, becoming a regional war and they're doing everything they can from the beginning. And mm-hmm. I said it was five visits, but it's actually, um, four visits. This is his fourth visit. So, I don't, people are skeptical by these comments. Do you think the United States, uh, and the Biden administration is doing everything they can to prevent this war from spreading?
2: Well, they think they are, but they're not. I mean, the obvious, the obvious, uh, problem here is that the United States is complicit in this ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza. I'll repeat, it's our weapons, it's our money in the very substantial fashion that are being used to kill and ethnically cleanse in Gaza. And the world is outraged, and the Muslim world is outraged, and many citizens here are outraged. And what the United States needs to do is we need to substantially change our foreign policy towards Israel, we need to stop all weapons going to Israel, we need to stop political support for this ethnic genocide, we need to stop uh, sending money to Israel, and we need to support the Palestinians and the Israelis equally. Uh, And we're not doing that. We are saying, oh, we don't want too many children to die. Well, how Mm. many children is acceptable to uh, Secretary Blinken to die? So, frankly, Uh, they're they're trying to patch up a really bad policy.
0: Of course, now the number of children killed in Gaza is, you know, well, over 10,000, maybe 12,000. There's thousands still under the rubble. The total death toll, some are estimating as high as 30 or 35,000 people killed in Gaza. Majority of those are civilians. 65 or 70% of them are women and children. We're seeing horrific images of even people Just this week, I saw a video of a woman holding her son's or child's hand, walking, both waving white flags in a group, people who were told to evacuate or go to the South. And they were shot. She was shot by sniper fire, killed right there on camera. It was actually a video from November, but it just uh, came out now. So we're seeing a lot of atrocities that uh, are happening there. When you you say that... um, you know, we need to defund uh, and, and not send weapons uh, to Israel. Obviously, I mean, who do you think is, who wants this war to continue? Is it the Israeli side or the American side, or do they both want it? I mean, who's who's driving? Are, are the Israelis working uh, on, you know, at the instructions of the American government, or is it the Americans that are just trying to restrain the Israeli government from what they're doing. Who's leading on this policy, or is it mutual? Both want the same thing, or or is it the other way around? Because there's just a lot of speculation now. Who's in charge, and who's pushing for the genocide to continue?
2: Well, it, the Israelis have been very clear. Netanyahu and his uh, his Likud uh, partners and and others. Have been very clear. They want ethnic cleansing. They've used the term voluntary, you know, emigration uh, to refer to the Palestinians. They're wanting to ethnically cleanse, and the United States, of course, is not tr- trying to, doesn't want to, doesn't really care about the Palestinians very much. It just doesn't want to mess up its relations with Egypt and Saudi, and doesn't want a regional war. So the United States is is covering protecting Israel to do as much ethnic cleansing as it possibly can without it going to a regional war. I think it's pretty clear to everybody what's happening. Summer, uh,
1: Michael, I want to ask you about uh, your book, uh, because nice. I think it's available uh, to our listeners if you want to go to nonviolenceinternational.net. Uh, I think Michael has the book available in PDF uh, file. You can download it. Um, tell, tell us a little bit uh, about your uh, book, uh, Michael, and uh, like, what is it that we can do in the 21st century?
2: I've, I've cataloged, uh, hundreds and hundreds of nonviolent tactics, uh, in my book and in a database that we have at the website of nonviolenceinternational.net. And what we've documented is just an astonishing array of tactics from all over the world throughout history and there are many many more that have not been put the still have not been catalogued and i want people to know that in times of despair as this we have now that there are just so many weapons nonviolent weapons that we can use to pressure uh, the powers that be to create new institutions to move the the powers uh to a place where they have to do what we say. And I would invite people to uh, download the book for free. It's not something you have to read from front to back, but there are just lots and lots and lots of uh, tactics there that hopefully can inspire uh, you, oh, maybe that can work here uh, in this particular context. Uh, I would like to mention two other quick things. One is that one of the most successful nonviolent Movements we've seen in the last couple of years have actually been done by the Israeli people towards their own government around the Supreme Court uh, challenge that they have in that country. Um, of course, you know Palestinians were excluded from this and all that. But I'm just talking strictly from a nonviolent action standpoint. They blocked trains, they blocked traffic, they blocked the airport. They did things in a coordinated fashion that we need to replicate to some degree, and that we've seen Jews here in this country try to replicate to some degree, particularly if not now in Jewish Voice for Peace. And we can learn from successful recent uh, campaigns. I'd also like to bring people's attention to the book that we've published called Beyond the Two-State Solution. It's also a free download in in Arabic, Hebrew, uh, English, and Spanish. And it basically says, two-state solution is no longer possible. Let's be realistic and move forward on some sort of one-state solution and and providing people one template for moving forward. So yes, people, there is hope. We can have an impact on US foreign policy if we work it on a global scale and with other countries. We can change, and we must stop this genocide from happening. So I thank you all.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Michael Weber, executive of uh, Nonviolence International. Thank you for being on True Talk. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Michael. Nonviolence International. I mean, um, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of protest happening. And speaking of nonviolence, today this weekend marks Saturday, October thir- I mean, January 13th, not October, January 13th marks the hundredth day of this ongoing uh, war on Gaza, uh, ongoing genocide. And there is an International Day of Action. People Mm -hmm. around the world are going to hit the streets, demanding an immediate ceasefire, not only ceasefire, but a permanent ceasefire. There's going to be thousands, tens of thousands of people descending to Washington, DC, where there's a march in Gaza there. But there are also similar marches all over the world, Mm Summer.
1: Do you think
0: the world leaders will pay attention and heed these calls?
1: Uh, some of them will, uh, because uh, there are a huge number of Americans who have uh, been saying publicly they're not going to vote for uh, uh, Biden, Biden, no matter what. It doesn't. He has to pay a price for allowing genocide to continue.
0: At, at the fear that it may actually bring Trump to power. But some people that I talk to when I raise this I, and I ask, because I you know I actually talked to some people that have started this campaign called Abandon Biden which I'm not mm-hmm. crazy about the name itself because abandoning is more like when you abandon a child but the concept of not voting for Biden which could lead to Trump and their response is well you know what they're not going to get us any worse anymore. than this <laughs> they can't get any worse one but they also said you know what Trump was in office for 4 years and we survived and the most he can be in office against for four years. But of course, some people say that he wants to cancel democracy altogether so that there is a risk there. But the Democrats and Biden is going to probably have to do something to convince people to vote for him instead of just scaring people from Trump. It's not good enough. It worked last time to say, hey, if you don't get if you don't vote for me, you'll get Trump. I don't think that will work as easily. But some we're out of time. I want to thank our listeners. This is WMNF Tampa. And uh, continue listening. This is True Talk. Thank you so much. See you at the same time, same place right here at uh, on True Talk and on WMNF. Have a great weekend.
2: And this is WMNF Tampa, 88.5 on the left side of your dial. Stay tuned for NPR News. And then uh, Mark Hart will be in with music. So don't go anywhere.